Hi, I'm Charles. And you're listening to Hold Me, I'm Scared. And welcome back to Hold Me, I'm Scared, where once a week we pick out something spooky or scary and we explore it. Yes, this week we are talking about something hardly even scary at all. Kidnapping. (laughs) Yeah, turns out you don't have to be just a kid to get napped. Anybody can be napped. Um, True. Any size, any shape. Bailey, how do you feel about kidnapping? I mean, I'm against it. I don't think you should do it. Um, I hope it never happens to me. Also hope it never happens to you. Do you just think it's not a possibility for you? I'm not concerned with it? I think it's not a big possibility for me, but I also hope it doesn't happen to me. Um, because... I don't, I don't want to get napped. I feel like, you know, it's never a good thing. So, I don't want it. Yeah, okay. Really brave <laughs> stuff here. I know. You and I always have a very lot of... Uh, whoa, whoa. You and I always have a lot of controversial statements. Like, I don't want to get kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what are you afraid of today? Um, so, I went to the, the beach today. And I'm afraid that I got a sunburn, even though I was so careful about my sunscreen and I reapplied throughout the time I was there, which was only a few hours. I think I still may have gotten a sunburn. (gasps) No, but you reapplied. I know I did everything right, but my jeans are not made for the sun. I think I'm like part mole person because (laughs) the sun hates me. I don't think I'm meant to be in the sunshine. I just, like, crisp up. We are a pale, and it is a problem, especially when it comes to the sun. And now that you're burnt, see, and I've had burns, too. And then I'm like, am I going to have skin cancer when I get older? I know. I have to wear sunscreen even in the winter because the sun reflecting off the snow has given me a sunburn before. Oh, yeah, because you get a lot more snow up in there. Chicago, there's a lot of snow. And it, look, and if anybody hasn't played outside in the snow on, like, a sunny day, it really does reflect off, like, incredibly bright. I'm Pause never... for dog. Hold, hold for dog, please. We're probably going to have neighbor noises. Someone moved in on the other side of me. And they're also really loud. I just live in a building full of, like, fucking loud people, myself included. So everyone just take it as city ambiance and get over it. Yeah, I, like I said, I like to think of it as, like, the ghostly spirits kind of chattering in the back, you know? I wish they would stop chattering, though, like, at, like, 3 a.m., <laughs> Not a big fan of them chattering then. I wish we had, like, chattering hours, you know? <laughs> I want there to be a sign that says chattering hours. <laughs> like, <laughs> from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Is that reasonable? 10 p.m.? I think so, yeah. Even 10. I could do 10. I just think, like, this is just a good rule, just in general, like, for everyone. After 10 o'clock at night, just, like, shut up. 
Right. Like turn things down. Speak it like a like this. Like this right now how I'm talking. This is a good this is a good talking volume. And like what even have you not spoken enough, you know, by then? What what's left to say? <laughs> nothing. There's nothing left to say now. <laughs> it's late at night and you better be quiet or they'll find you. What are you afraid of today? I I'm I'm afraid that I'm constipated. Oh. Yeah, but it's sort of like my own fault. Well, actually, well how? You don't even eat anything except for the air. <laughs> and the air has no fiber, so I can't <laughs> pass it. I can't pass. I think, listen, let me say this. I am always a big advocate of talking about your poop. It is just like, it's a good thing to talk about. It's a good thing to know, mm-hmm. like, what what the bowl is telling you about your health. There's a whole Bristol stool chart. I encourage you to look at it to see what you might need, given the image left behind. Um, yeah. I'm afraid that people are not taking poop seriously. Well, okay. <laughs> Shut up. Bitches are so loud. Okay, but I was into that haunting singing right there. <laughs> um, uh, honestly, at this point, I'd rather live with a ghost. Don't, I, well, no. I don't know if you want that. Don't, don't say that just I yet. I want that to happen. Maybe I would rather have a ghost next door as long as it's like chill. I think a ghost would be quieter is what I'm saying. Yeah, because... Well, I don't know. I've heard some loud ghosts, especially like the poltergeist kind of kinds. <laughs> Sponsored by Kind Bar. <laughs> um, the poltergeist ghost, they they move stuff around in the middle of the night because they're, I don't know, bored or trying to get attention. Yeah, but my cat does that already, so. <gasps> Fralbus. He's bird watching. Does he make that little <laughs> sound? No, I'm, I'm not familiar with that sound. From cats. You don't know that sound? The sound where they look at birds and they make this like clicky like <laughs> sound? No, my cat has never made that sound. Well, it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I got a defective model. I don't know what to tell you. Honestly, Albus is a defective <laughs> model. He's weird. He's one of those cats that has like the permanent like mean mug. No, he's like mean. Well, yeah. That's also his personality. But we love him. We stand the cat. And that's just a fact. <laughs> and you know what else is a fact? Tell me. The fact and figures section. <laughs> okay. So, um, kidnapping. Right? It happens. And it happens, unfortunately, so often that we have facts and figures on it. So, these come from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is missingkids.org and finelaw.com and the FBI. So according to finelaw.com, under federal and state law, kidnapping is commonly defined as the taking of a person from one place to another against their will or the confinement of a person to a controlled space Some kidnapping laws require that the taking or confinement be for an unlawful purpose, such as extortion 
or the facilitation of another crime. Additionally, a parent without legal custody rights may be charged with kidnapping for taking their own child in certain circumstances. In 2020, the NCM which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, assisted law enforcement and families with more than 29,800 cases of missing children. And, like, it's great that they assisted them, right? But also, like, that's a lot of cases. Yeah, for one year. And that's just children. Uh, Yeah, and that's scary and sad and disgusting. Mm-hmm. And it's just the children that, like, this, that uh, the NCMEC worked with, too. So there's definitely more in any, in any given year. Right. And I'm sure this is just the U.S. So, like... Yeah. And you know all the right... Uh, sad. Okay. So with that giant number of 29,800 cases, this is how, like, the percentage was broken down. So the biggest, largest was 91% were endangered runaways, and 5% were family abductions, 3% was critically missing young adults ages 18 to 20, so yeah, less than 1% non-family abductions, and 1% lost, injured, or otherwise missing children. According to Find Law, most kidnapping cases are prosecuted on the state level. However, federal authorities will typically get involved and file federal charges if the kidnapping crosses state lines, which is, no, sorry, Um, Federal Criminal Code 18 U.S.C. Section 1201 makes kidnapping a serious felony offense with prison sentences of 20 or more years, depending on prior convictions convictions and circumstances of the case federal law prosecutes international parental kidnapping under a different code 18 usc section 1204 allowing for three-year prison sentences upon conviction in 2019 the latest year published data was available the fbi arrested 195 people for kidnapping or abduction and that is a 195 too many. Yeah, but to be honest, when I was looking at these statistics, I I thought it'd be more than that. I think it's because a lot of times, like, we don't have um, statistics that are specific to, like, kidnappings and abductions. So a lot of times they get conflated with, like, missing children's cases. Because, um, like, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children works with... Uh, families of people who have been kidnapped or people who are just or children who are just missing um so a lot of the statistics available aren't kidnapping specifically but only five percent were family abductions of those twenty nine thousand eight hundred cases less than one percent were non-family abductions so it's only about like six percent of those cases were actually like abduction or kidnapping cases and honestly like Look, it's it's like wait, it's still way too many. Um, but the 195 people that were arrested in 2019, like over the course of a whole year, that I thought it would be higher. Like I, I think it's just because we were of the generation where like Stranger Danger, like that whole thing was like super popular. And I remember we had to watch 
like videos at school about you know like stranger abductions and like how to like that you should run away from anyone who like pulls over to talk to you right and like all Um, the like older generation being like in my day you didn't even have to lock your door we just played outside and there was like you could leave your kids outside and no one would ever worry about it nowadays like you can't even leave your front door without the threat of being kidnapped so i would also expect that to be like 500 like percent larger just i don't know i feel like i mean understandably so you should teach your kids about stranger danger but sometimes i feel like it was just like too much well i think when we when like that the emphasis was put on like oh like if something bad is going to happen to you it's going to be a stranger who does that when really those are kind of like the rarest forms yeah that's of true. like abduction or like violent crime in general i think like then a lot of people like overlooked what could be going on in their own homes or with their own family members yeah like why isn't that taught upon why isn't it like anybody who's making you uncomfortable or like making you do things that like you shouldn't have to do or like you don't want to do like in that kind of way you know not like you know what I mean yeah I think we're like evolving towards that I hope so I just I don't think we we definitely weren't there when like you and I were children we never talked about like how it could be someone that's like close to you that could hurt you or like no it was just always like somebody in a van pulls up to you while you're walking home from school (laughs) that's the person who's going to be dangerous not like the creepy uncle who is most often the threat yeah yeah, it, it's way more common for, like, basically any crimes against children or, like, violent crime in general to be people that, like, already have access to the victim as opposed to, like, a stranger. Yeah. Crime. But they do happen. They do happen. Like, Perhaps both... we'll hear about some today. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I guess I'm first. Whoop whoop. I can't tell you my source title yet. Because it kind of gives the whole story away. Okay. So I will mention that later. But I do have to admit something. Okay. So I think I used to be problematic. And I, well, I know I was. um, (laughs) For a lot of reasons. But as I was doing this report, I remembered I used to have, like, kind of fantasies about, like, being kidnapped. And now, like, it's a little personal. Um, But... I think it has ties to, like, a lot of people do, like, sexual kind of, like, kink, right? Like, domination or, like, bondage or whatever. And at a younger age, I didn't understand that part of myself. Nobody does. So, which, on that, like, I like the idea. But sometimes I've been put into that kind of, like, romantic situation. And I get upset when someone tries to control me or, like, take control of the situation. So, sometimes what you think you want is not what you actually want. But, yeah. Anyway kidnapping and i god i even wrote this down and i put in all caps ew um i just remembered too like adding oh my god i i read this like fan fiction or like wattpad story of this like vampire who kidnapped this girl and it like wasn't finished at the time and it was like a victim to lover and i can't help but like think of how that is such a, a big thing so like this victim to lover thing it's gross it's weird and we that like as a society we need to see why we find enjoyment in that 
Yeah. Well, like, didn't Netflix recently come out with a movie that basically had, like, it was like a, a, I think it was called, like, 365 Days or something, and it's like this girl that gets kidnapped by this guy. It's the same thing, and then she, like, falls in love with him over, like, the course of the year that she's his hostage, and it's like, baby, that's not love. (laughs) You're being held hostage. (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome is not something to be idolized. Uh, Yeah, so look. A would you rather, okay? okay? I did have to come up with that on the spot. But would... Okay, we'll make this easy. Or maybe maybe not easy. But, like, it's it seems like a lighter choice, these choices. Would you rather be really, really busy with your job and get the day off, but you only have, like, a couple hours to just, like, do whatever... Or would you rather have just, like, almost too much free time and have to work, like, a really, really hard job, but only, like, a couple days a week? Oh, I would rather work the hard job a couple days a week, for sure. Okay. Well, in this story, (laughs) this person did not have a really, really hard job just a couple days a week. I mean, I guess you could argue that they did, but so I came across this YouTube video and it was of a interview with this woman and it's about like eight years ago. And oftentimes I feel like when somebody thinks of a kidnapper, you think of some run of the mill, like low society scumbag who's like always just been just that right like just the villain of the story like they were born the villain so when you start to think of like these people being like somebody's friend or like a co-worker or a family member to me that makes it just like that much creepier because it doesn't feel like such a fantasy anymore right it doesn't feel like just this villain who kidnaps people because that's what they were meant to do like oftentimes it's these people who you knew to be somebody else, somebody you thought you could trust. And it turns out they've always had nefarious intentions. So we're going to get into that in a second. But I do have a trigger warning. This does involve abuse and sexual abuse and rape. So skip forward to Bailey's story about 30 minutes from now, if that's something that you'd rather not hear about, though I'm willing to bet hers might involve the same themes because no it doesn't i oh no, wow well that's good yeah a lot of kidnapping stories do so i know i deliberately um, steered away from that so come on to my story if you don't want to hear about that today <laughs> that's good <laughs> um so yeah about eight years ago maybe even nine now there was this girl named Erin Orcut, and she was just living her normal life. She's the mom of one son and she works as a waitress. So very, very busy job. She doesn't get a lot of time off. She said like, especially towards the weekend um, from like Thursday evening to Sunday afternoon, she's just busy with a capital B. And that brings back memories for me because talk about things that scare you. I'm glad like I finally did the whole server thing like for just the experience of just doing it but that type of job sometimes is just grossly demanding especially when people are just rude for no 
reason. Mm-hmm. I'm very Preach. passionate about that. So, but you know what? Maybe we'll do waitress, waitressing for another day because this is not about her waitressing job per se, though it did play a role. Um, like I said, Erin was busy. She lived in Ontario, California. She's slinging food and cocktails. And however, she was very busy, but there was one Saturday in April that was really slow and she was able to leave early. Now, no matter like what job you work, getting off early and the feeling like the, the just fun feeling of like, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do now with this extra time? Am I going to go home? Am I going to do this? Am I going to go shopping? Like it's just, it's a great feeling to have. And especially with a restaurant job on a Saturday. Getting yeah. Off early on a Saturday. Mm. I know. So Erin was more than happy to leave and have the evening to do whatever she was going to do. So she's walking to her car and she said she has this habit of like unlocking her doors twice so that it unlocks all the doors, which I'm sure is like a mom thing um, because, you know, the son probably needs to get in on the other side of the car or in the back. So she has to unlock all the doors so that they can get in too. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden she hears a voice say, get in the car. And her first initial reaction was, this is a coworker just like being silly but she also didn't recognize the voice. And then now she sees his face. She also doesn't recognize the face and her tone of the situation really changed, especially when the man was holding a gun on her. So unfortunately for Aaron, the parking lot was pretty empty. If you remember, business was really slow that day, but even if someone did see her, he was holding the gun really, really low to his waist. And he had a friend with him who was blocking the view of the gun. Mm. Now, that's a, this is like literally my worst nightmare. I mean, it's not like groundbreaking, but I am so scared of guns. Like even being in the same room as a gun freaks me the fuck out. And I, like that idea of like just someone having like a gun to my back all of a sudden is just so horrifying and like a, a well, and fear that I have like nightmares so. about. Yeah. Yeah. Because like I was saying, I think it's pretty normal. can end your life quickly and yeah. you just have like no say. Like at any moment, someone could just like pull the trigger and like in less than five seconds, if it hits you just right, you're gone. Everything's done for you. That's scary. Yeah. That's oh my horrifying. God. We should do something about, oh my God. Hold me. I'm scared about guns. I don't know. Anyway, so, listen, guns, they're scary. Aaron was terrified, obviously. Who wouldn't be terrified if somebody's holding a gun on you and says, like, get in your car? Um, Because, like we just talked about, all it takes is just one pull of that trigger and she's gone. So, when he asked her to get in the car and drive, that's what she did. And he got in the passenger seat and the friend just stayed in the parking lot. I don't know why. Um, He... Didn't even tell her, like, where to drive. So she had this slight advantage, she thought. She grew up in the city, so she knew where there were areas that police frequented. And she was trying to, like, steer that way. And when I was watching her story, I was thinking what I might do in this situation. And she had the same thoughts 
as me. Like, do I crash the car? Do I run into somebody else? Do I run it off the road? And I feel like if you're speeding, you could get attention of like maybe police and the kidnapper might be less inclined to shoot you because you also now have some of their livelihood like in your hands. And you could also accidentally kill you both, but people are crazy and he might've planned on killing himself anyway, or just shoot you like who knows what you would actually do in this situation. So she's driving and she's like pleading with him and saying like, look, you can take the car. I don't even care. Like you can have it. Don't worry about it. I I won't even like have the police come find you. Like, just let me go. You can have the car. But he tells her to pull over into this, like, small strip mall-like place with all these, like, small section of stores. There's, like, a liquor store and a small little warehouse and, at like, a gas station up the road. And she said that there's usually a cop there, but not on that day. So he tells her to go to the back of the stores, and she tries to tell him that they're is no back because there's a gate where you need a code so you can't get to the back and he fights her on it a little so she just pulls into a spot outside of the gate because she's like I don't know where else to go and here's where things get unfortunately even darker so he forces her to get into the back and he gets in the back with her and he demands for her to start taking off her clothes And she starts to, but she's crying really hard. And he puts the gun to her head and, like, is telling her to stop. So she tries her best and even wondered, like, is this gun really loaded? Do I have, like, time to run away? And she got her answer because when he, like, cocked the gun, a bullet fell out. So she knew, like, this guy meant business. Like, this was real. This was loaded. And he made her, like, climb on top of her. And he tried. This is important. Like, I don't want to, like graphically describe this but um this ties in so he tried to penetrate her but he couldn't and he like throws her off has her start doing other things and while she's doing that he's taking all these pictures of her and he's sending those pictures to his friend back in that other parking lot and what the fuck I know I was like also just weird um so he then like gets a call from that friend or he calls the friend unclear and the dude in the parking lot is like where are you at and the kidnapper guy is like laughing and joking being like what you can't see me I'm over here and Aaron is just like in disbelief because she sees him like laughing and he's acting like this is just like like a casual like everyday occurrence like like going grocery shopping right because that's what it sounds like to her yes and she's like this doesn't even feel real like i don't i don't even know what to do right now and he hangs up and just stares blankly at her for like a couple seconds And then he gets angry and violent and starts beating her up. And then he tries to rape her from behind. And he's still unsuccessful. And I guess this is due to, like, he can't keep an erection. So after what felt like about an hour, she says, he told her to get dressed and said they're going out to the desert to finish this, quote unquote. And 
in her mind, she was like, I just knew that meant he was going to take me out there and kill me. Um, right. You know, and, and do whatever else before then. So she was going to try to make a break for it. And she was sitting on the driver's side in the back. He's sitting on the passenger side in the back. And she notices that his gun fell to the floor and is under the passenger seat. And she remembers that her car has a child lock, but only on the passenger side, not on hers. And she said also, like, to the interviewer, it was also just, like, just unbelievable. Like, not that all this was happening and, like, the, um, you know, the laughter and the phone call, like, the weird casual thing. But he was also, like, on top of her, like, son's car seat. And that's just, right? So I don't even know how to explain that, but like, you just know that's just, it's just wrong. And so, like I said, she remembers that there is a child lock on his side and he gets another phone call and she said she didn't even like waste time, just fight or flight kicked in. And she said she threw the door open, and in her words, I ran like the hounds of hell were on my heels. And there is actual security cam footage of her running, and it is, I'm getting like chills right now, it is nerve-wracking to watch because it's just a a couple seconds long, but seeing her, like just trying her best just to like truck it away from this car, and... It's, it's it's terrifying. I mean, you're watching and, someone, like, literally run for their life, so... Right, and uh, what's even worse is you can't hear her screaming, but she was saying, like, the whole time, she's like, he's got a gun, and, like, help, and, um, you know, that's... Oh, God, I, I can't even imagine. And it almost looks to you like she is running pretty fast, but it takes her like a second to get her footing. So it does kind of feel like that nightmarish moment of like, you're not able to run away fast enough in the very beginning of her running. Oh, I had like major panic watching that, even though I knew she was alive in the future. Yeah. Um, That's so scary. So there were some stores nearby, like I mentioned before. And Aaron says that in the liquor store, the manager had been watching them unbeknownst to her this whole time because he saw that there were two people in the car he thought it was just weird and they were about to actually call the police and when they saw her running and screaming for help they like grabbed her and were like get inside get inside and they like put her behind the cash register and then they called the police and she said at that moment like she just lost it she just broke down and I can't even imagine, like, what is going through your head in that moment? Like, like, thankful that you got away, but, like, frightened of what just happened to you. And so in this interview, we also get the perspective of Detective Robert Marquez, who said that after studying the case, he is certain that this man was planning on killing her. Like, there's just no question about it. Yeah. So when she when she made a run for it. The attacker took her keys and tried to drive off with the car. However, he was unsuccessful because she had a kill switch. Now, I wasn't quite sure what that was. Um, So if you don't know, like I didn't, it's a switch that's connected to something in your car that is vital to turn over the engine. So like a battery or the fuel pump, for example. 
And unless you know where that switch sensor is, you can't start the car. So, Hmm. since... And and I guess, like, some places make it illegal to have in your car. I don't know if you have to, like, have it professionally installed. I don't know. But I kind of liked the idea of, like... It's, like, anti-theft almost. Right, Uh, yeah. They're, like, main purposes. So... I think she should have had, like, a button that she could just, like, detonate the car and it would explode. Honestly. And I would have just and, blasted that person to smithereens in my car. You know what would have been nice, too, is if, like, dependent on where you are in the car, if you could just, like, hit that button, it would eject your seat out and mm. then just explode the whole car. But that would also suck if you had a passenger or your. Well, you gotta you gotta make some tough choices. We'll get back to you later, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, kid. Um. So, yes, he could not start the car. He couldn't drive away, so he decided to make a run for it, and he made a very big mistake. And we are very very thankful for this one. He left his gun behind, and you're like, great. They've got his fingerprints. Oh, no, no, no. Even better. There's a last name taped on the bottom of this gun's mag. Oh, my God. Right. So the detective, when they were, like, studying the car, they see, like, her left behind some clothes. And he notices on the gun, it's no ordinary labeling system that... This is something he knew too well because this is how some officers labeled their guns. So the name on the Mm -hmm. bottom was Orban. And from the town over, there was an officer, Anthony Orban, who reported his gun missing. So there are only two options here. Either this attacker stole a cop's gun or this attacker was the cop. Right. So they track down Orban. He's in a parking lot where he is helping a friend find their truck. Um, and this is another, like, dude named, uh, like, Officer Jeffrey something. I couldn't really, like, figure out how to spell his last name. So I just left it at Jeffrey. Um, but these two men matched Aaron's descriptions to a T of her attackers. So Aaron was brought up to where um, Officer Orban was just like surrounded by like 10 cop cars with floodlights on him and she was like yes like that's them 100% no question about it and they even had Aaron's car keys with them so of course okay. they why lied. are fucking like people who do these crimes are always so goddamn bad at it like I know I'm like stupid. I don't want you to be good at it but like you're no, stupid but like, it's like not only are you ge- like genuinely the biggest piece of shit, you're also like stupid. You're also an idiot. Like, right? I'm like. Oh, I think God, it's I like anyway. I think some people who do this like just think that they're invincible. Because I I feel right. like if you're a cop, like you know how to how police. It's not okay if you're a cop. It's literally not hard to get away with crimes. At all. We've all seen it. If you've watched Mm -hmm. the news Mm -hmm. at any point. Like, and so I'm like, did he just think he was, like, invincible? Like, there was just, like... 
I guess, or like, I don't know what was going through his dumb, small little brain. So, yeah. He also has Aaron's keys. <laughs> um, so, they took the keys away and took them in. And of course, she's shocked to not only learn that her attackers have been caught, but they're also both policemen. And so, like, can you, like, think about being her and then thinking back to how you were just, like, praying that a cop car would be there? That you would find a police car. Yeah. Uh, like, and that, like, also makes me think, like, was the cop usually there, like, that wasn't there that day? Was that him? Like, and that's what brings me back to where I mentioned earlier, like, you think of kidnappers as always this just like do random dude in a van who was just always born to be a kidnapper right but these are supposed to be the people supposed to be who you know are like protecting yeah society and now this is the person like who was an attacker and a rapist and a kidnapper like and he's a policeman like and people wonder why we don't trust the police it's yeah. just a couple of bad eggs, they say. Okay. Sure, a lot of bad eggs up in there. Need to get a new f- fucking chicken coop. Anyway. I was about to say the whole <laughs> egg, tree, egg tree is rotten. And then I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> the whole egg tree is rotten. Plant a new egg tree. And mix my food it. metaphors. If eggs come from trees, I can have them again. I don't really miss them, but... They only come from trees in my imagination. I'm sorry to tell you. Damn. Yeah. Although, okay, interesting point. This is, like, a big tangent. But apparently, they've found in mushrooms a protein that is, like, genetically similar to a protein in milk. So it helps them make, like vegan quote-unquote like milk products like dairy products and I don't know how I feel about that because it if it's like genetically identical like I got I got rid of dairy too for like health reasons and it really did help my body out and my skin cleared up and I just have a lot of le- like a lot less mucus in my face but mm-hmm. I'm like would it do the same thing to me if it's well, like genetically only similar, one way to find out: eat the milk room. Eat the milk room. <laughs> so, yes, and she had the same thought that I did at the time. Like, no one is going to take her seriously, or there will be no justice because these attackers are one of them, right? They're police. They're going to get away with it. They get away with shit all the time. So, I mean, what else would you be led to think? Yeah. Fortunately, both her and I, and maybe even you, listener, and Bailey, are wrong. So, in custody, they claim, both Orban and the other dude, claim not to remember anything. And in this interrogation, they're, they're like, why were you, like, at Dave & Buster's, I guess? Like, why were you by there? And he's like... I don't know. And then they're like, do you remember pulling your pants down? And he's like, I don't remember that. And he's like, why? Like, why were you where you were? He's like, I don't know. So they asked the other guy, 
the same thing. And he's like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. So he claims that it's because he had too many margaritas for lunch and he's on Zoloft. So this is, he, so he like blacked out. He doesn't okay. remember a thing that's happened. And so they ask him too, because in Aaron's story, she's like, he tried to penetrate me, but he couldn't because he couldn't get hard. And so mm-hmm. they're like, is that something that happens to you? And he's like, uh, yeah, like Zoloft, that, that happens to me sometimes. So it kind of goes on to like this whole, I don't remember anything. And they asked the other officer, Jeffrey, and eventually he kind of just cracks and says like I don't remember anything but you might want to take a look at the photos on Orban's phone and the detective is like what photos so they look and find all those pictures of Aaron that Anthony had sent to Jeffrey and Anthony is still holding fast to this amnesia story and even when the interrogators left the room he kept it up and the audio was like this has got to be a bad dream. What's going on? Oh, what like he's fuck? saying that to himself when they're out of the yes, room? Yes, because he knows that the cameras are still watching him. But dude, okay, and also, like, every time someone does that shit, it is so obvious. Cause- <laughs> right, and look, it was bad acting. And, like, I'm not going to put the sound clips in because they just sound too tinny. But, like, the way he's saying it, he's like, <laughs> this has got to be a bad dream. What's going on? What the fuck? I'm like, really? Okay, Riverdale. Really? Reel it in. Ugh. Is he, he's literally company? bad at everything. Like, he can't do crime. He can't do cop. He can't act. This guy just, like, sucks. Right. Like, what can you do? Drink and hurt people. Be a so, piece of trash. Now, get this, Bailey, because this is, like, sick irony. And I don't even know if all of you are ready for this. The work that Anthony specialized in was sex crimes. Genuinely doesn't surprise me at all. It may not be surprising, but it's still like, it's still just gut-wrenchingly like sick. Because you're like, ugh, this is the guy like working on these cases to solve all these, like, whatever. But But I'm like, is he just using it as like a learning research database? Like, Well, I mean... If you talk to, like, any woman who has reported a rape to the police or, like, any kind of sexual assault, it's, like, very clear that all officers, and it's, like, even in some cases, especially those that are supposed to be handling sexual assault, hate women. It's, like, why? Like... For what? It is very apparent. There are even, like, I... I know people who have reported, and, like, this is not to, like, say don't report, um, because, like, there are people that do find healing in that, um, in coming forward to law enforcement, and, like, at the end of the day, that is completely your decision, and whatever you need to do to, like, be okay after something like that, do it, but... I think, like, most women either have reported or know someone who has reported, and were just treated terribly by the police that were put in charge of handling their case. Like, it's... 
It's tragic and it's awful, but genuinely, like, the least shocking thing about this to me. Uh, that's even scarier. Like, look, just, I, no one can tell you what to do if something terrible happens like this to you, but tell somebody. <laughs> um, yeah, you can, if you, it, yeah, if you decide not to go through law enforcement, there is still, there are still resources and options available to you and going through law enforcement is an option and for some people it is the right choice but ultimately it's up to you but yeah it is really terrible how victims are treated in cases of sexual assault a lot of the time and a lot of the time people who like (laughs) are capable of doing that shit themselves are the unfortunately the ones that are handling it just scary and gross and uh, like as awful and scary as the story is, if you happen to be listening to this and, like, you you are going through something terrible like this, I, I don't want it to, like, look, we're all cab over here, but, like, I don't want it to dissuade you from, like, talking to somebody about it, even if, like, that's the route you want to go with law enforcement. Like, just, it's... Tell somebody, please. Um, so... When it comes to his plea, he pleads not guilty by insanity and claims that it was the Zoloft that made him do it. Which Aaron was like, I know plenty of people who are on Zoloft and they didn't try to rape me or anybody else. So while he is in jail, he's making phone calls, which are recorded too. And he's saying things like, it would be easier if the witness just weren't around. And Aaron said, like, during this time, I know, I'm like, you are literally the worst criminal. Fucking stupid. (laughs) Like, no, nobody wants you to be good at this. But, like, it just, it's like, if you're going to be a criminal, try. I don't know. Like, but, so, yeah. it's like, also, you are a goddamn cop. Like, how do you not think about the fact that you're on a recorded line when you're calling from prison? Like, just I don't know. Hinting that this guy you want is this literally to die. A, like a dumbass. <laughs> and she, Aaron said that, like, during this time that she was waiting for the trial, she was receiving weird phone calls and even followed. She was like followed on the highway. Once, so the police kept her under watch and secluded and basically did everything short of like putting her in the witness protection program. Um, like while they were waiting for his sentence, so they only allowed her to attend the verdict trial and he was found guilty on literally every single charge and. The whole jury was like, fuck this guy. Like, yes, guilty of rape, guilty of kidnapping, guilty of all of it. And the officer partner was sentenced to five years. And now, like, I don't understand our judicial system sometimes. It took two and a half years for Orban to get a full sentence. And I'm like... Why? 
why two and a half years to get a full sentence? Maybe there was like appeals. Go- I don't really know when that in the yeah, process like was, that happens. I don't but... know. Like, was everything backed up? Like, was he waiting in a queue? Is there just that many things you know, going on? Okay, but some people like it. We think we have the right to like a speedy trial, but like there are lots of people that get arrested and li- don't have a trial for like two years, and they're in like county jail just waiting for trial. Like people that may be found innocent. That is crazy to me. America is so like messed up, especially with our law system. Like and that's what makes it a scary world out there. <laughs> for real um so i don't know when the other officer received his sentence but aaron says that these two and a half years later she is going to meet her attacker face to face once again and she's gonna read this like survivor statement and now she says that she was even in a place to forgive which to me do what you got to do for yourself. I don't think that there's a need to forgive this man in any way. No. Like, or forget what happened. I mean, like, don't think about it every day, but like, I don't think this man needs forgiveness at all. Or deserves it. Uh, at all. Right. Like, I don't think he deserves it literally in the least bit. But she said, like, that was something that she needed to do and needed to say, needed to feel for her to be able to move on. I don't get it, but yeah, do what you got to do. So the day that this is going to happen, Aaron's going to see him in the trial. Aaron gets a call saying that she may not even have to come down because Orban hung himself in prison. Oh my God. I know. But she continues and still gives the statement. She like reads it to his family that just sits there like respectfully listens to it which has got to be hard (laughs) yeah um like i don't know anything about these people they could all be also just like equally terrible but if it was just like your normal family i can't imagine hearing that like about your child or your brother or whatever and then like hearing the survivor like oh um, it's just it's horrible for everyone it is like like, fuck the guys who did it obviously I don't care I hope it's horrible for them I hope they're miserable (laughs) but it's just it's horrible for everyone especially for Aaron but like the idea of having to come to terms with the fact that like someone in your family is an absolute monster is also just awful yeah and that's why I mentioned earlier, like, somebody you thought you knew, like, you thought yeah. you could trust. Like, that's terrifying. And so she reads a statement to the family, and it mentioned, like, she was saying, if you were a real man, like, you wouldn't have, like, claimed like to not remember anything but like also if you're a real man like you wouldn't have raped anybody um yeah so she gives like a quote at the end and 
she just says, you know, like, I just have to, like, try my best to live my life. And for her, forgiving him was, like, a way to take her power back. And which is, like I said, I, I still don't understand, but I do think it's important for her to feel like she has taken her power back. And sure. it just kind of ends there. And ever since then, she's just decided to try to live her life to the fullest. And that is my kidnapping story. Wow. Uh very intense, but an important story to tell, I think. Um, if you listening or someone you know it has um, experienced sexual assault, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Uh, it's available 24 hours a day at 1-800-656-4673. You can also find resources at Rain www.rainn.org So, yes, Bailey has a another kidnapping story. I'm very interested to hear it because Bailey always finds she finds great stories. She does. Aww, so let's all you. buckle in and see what Bailey has dug up from the story graveyard. Okay, so I have a would you rather Ooh. Okay. Uh, would you rather have to do five, like, regular years of high school, uh, so, like, an extra year of high school, or okay. you do three years of high school but with no breaks, like, no summer break, no Christmas break, no spring break? But you're done in three years. You get to graduate a year early. Um, and there's no, like, normal see? four years. It's either five years or three, like, no-break years. Seeing as, like, how I was in high school, I would have chosen the five years because I didn't know what I wanted to do until after I graduated. So having that extra year to, like, figure it out and have nobody be mad at me because I don't have it figured out yet or whatever and like I still get to be in high school and like feel young and not as responsible I would pick yeah. the five years I get that that's that's fair I would definitely take the three I figured as much <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Today, I am going to tell you about the Chowchilla bus kidnapping. My sources were uh, ABC. They did a 48 Hours episode on it, which aired on October 12th, 2019 originally, and a Vox.com article by Caleb Horton. Okay, so this is the largest kidnapping for ransom in U.S. history. Oh it took place in the summer of 1976 in the inland farming town of Chowchilla, California. Chowchilla is a small rural community. Today, around 20,000 people live there. It's described as a close-knit, sleepy little place. Their town website has stuff like, um, like chronicles, like that big picnic that everyone was at, and like when this guy <laughs> won the pie-eating contest. <laughs> It's like uh, Stars Hollow from yes. Gilmore Horror Girls. Sounds like. Just, do they, yeah, look, I know the name isn't Chinchilla, but do they have something related to Chinchillas? 
I don't think so. Okay. Wishful thinking. Um, but yeah, it's like stars hollow, except if everyone were a poor farmer back in 1976, (laughs) that's what it was like. Um, okay. Okay. So, which like, it was like, you didn't need much to live in Chachilla. Like it was just like a little community with like their restaurant and their gas station and, like every everyone was neighborly and it sounds very pleasant okay so on july 15th 1976 bus driver and rancher edward ray picked up 26 children ranging in age from 5 to around 14 from summer school at dairyland elementary to return them home ed was a humble man who was strong patient and kind and generally adored by the children uh, that day, in particular, all of the kids were really excited on the bus because they had gone to a swimming pool. And for some of them, that was the first time they'd been swimming. And there was even a <laughs> petition making the rounds to extend summer school three more weeks. I'm sorry, to um, extend summer school? <laughs> yeah, apparently they were having a great time. <laughs> Get into it. I know. Um, so, Ed drops off the first couple of children and then he turns onto Avenue 21 and there's a white 71 Dodge van blocking the road. So he just tries to like pull around the van but a man with pantyhose covering his face holding a gun jumps out from the van in front of the bus. (sighs) Not the typical white van. I know, right? It is the stranger in the white van. Um, (laughs) Sometimes it really is. Sometimes it really is. So he, like, jumps out in front of the van, forcing Ed to stop. He walks to Ed's window and asks him, like, politely, would you please open the door? Which is so bone-chilling to think of, like, this person whose face is all distorted by these pantyhose, who's holding a gun, pointing it at you, just being like, oh, would you please open the door? Thank you so much. Hate it. I'd rather, yeah, the, oh, that juxtaposition is just creepy horror movie stuff okay so ed ed complies um and the man and uh two additional men who also have pantyhose covering their faces jump in one of them is carrying a sawed off shotgun and they um usher ed to the back and like threaten the kids um and then one of the men starts driving the bus. The other one leaves the van, uh, leaves the bus to follow in the white van, and one keeps a shotgun pointed at Ed and the kids. Uh, so Jennifer Brown Hyde, who was one of the survivors, who was nine at the time of the kidnapping, said in uh, her forty, yeah, I know, like we're gonna talk about little little babies. Um, she said in her forty-eight hours interview about their bus driver edward kept telling the kids to just be quiet sit down do what they say edward was speaking in a harsh tone and that normally was not the edward that we knew and loved so like that was like the first time these kids have ever heard him be like harsh with them and he was just trying to keep them safe i know i told you i cried six times while i wrote this report meanwhile me speaking harshly with my kids my kids would not be surprised Uh, it's like it has no effect on them anymore um so they drove for a while and then they went off 
the road into this dry riverbed, which was surrounded by a grove of tall bamboo, um, which would like concealed the bus. And there was another van, uh, a green van that was waiting for them. Oh my, no. Yeah, so Jennifer, the nine-year-old, she had made a recording with her mother documenting the events of that day, like shortly after this all happened. Um, And in that recording, nine-year-old Jennifer describes what happened next. She said, quote, and those two guys standing from the bus door to the van with guns with pantyhose over their head so we wouldn't run out. And then see, they pulled the van right up to the bus door. So they were like threatening the kids holding guns at them and then the van like pulled up right to the bus door and so the kidnappers made ed and the children jump from the bus to the two vans so they filled like one van and then filled the other um and they made them jump so that there wouldn't be any footprints um oh god i know so Jennifer... Also, imagine pointing guns at, like, nine-year-old children. I, some of them were as young as five. Look, you just have to be loud and scary. <laughs> like, yeah, I you know. know. point a gun and at children. There, there's one adult there, Ed, the bus driver, and, like... Uh. I know. Um, so Jennifer was separated from her 10-year-old brother, Jeff. Uh, like, she went in one van and he went in another, and she was just, like, crying out for him. Um, so Jennifer and another survivor named Larry Park were forced into the second van along with many of the other children and Ed, the driver. They were being threatened by the kidnapper with a shotgun. Larry, who was just six at the time, said, and walking toward it, the barrels on that gun seemed like they were getting so big they were just going to swallow me up. Oh, God. Isn't that so sad? Like, he's just so That little. is. Especially, like, being... You don't know. Like, this seems like something out of a... I mean, to anybody, it kind of feels like something out of a movie. But especially when you're a kid. Like, yeah. a young, young kid under 10. For me, that, like, image of him just, like, walking towards this gun and feeling like it was just gonna, like... The barrels just kept getting bigger and bigger. Like, they were gonna swallow him up. It's just, like, such a picture of how, like, innocent and terrified these kids were um so in the vans it's pitch black and the kidnappers had made made like makeshift jail cells uh by installing wood panels and painting the windows and jennifer said i know jennifer said she felt like she was an animal going to the slaughterhouse oh god this is terrible i know um so by this time, you know, the kids are late, pretty late from school, so the parents reached out to the police, and the police were already searching for all of the children and Ed. Um, and then just before sunset, a police pilot spotted the bus about seven miles outside of Chowchilla, and it was hidden in that riverbed where they pulled over. But like, okay, so they made all this effort to not make footprints, but then it was clearly obvious by the tire marks that someone had pulled a van up. And, like, put the kids inside. Because there were tire marks leading right up to the bus door. So it's like, what did you think you were hiding here? Right. Um, like, I mean, I guess, like, it makes sense. No footprints. But, like, the car leaves a footprint of its own. I know. Um, and so Sheriff Ed Bates said that when he saw this, the, the, like, van marks pulling right up to the door, he knew that the children and their bus driver had become the victims of a mass kidnapping unlike anything the country had seen before. Um, so Sheriff 
Bates reached out to the governor and the FBI for help. Uh, the parents at this point are all assembled at the local fire station, um, and Ed's like, or sorry, so Edward Bates is the sheriff too. So there's two Eds, but I'm gonna call him Sheriff Bates so we don't get confused because Ed is the bus driver. Um, and Sheriff Bates is telling the parents, like, I've contacted the FBI. And he said, like, almost as soon as he said it, 30 FBI agents showed up. Whoa. So everyone, That's yeah, so everyone is on the case. Um, meanwhile, the children and Ed are still trapped inside these hot, dark vans. Uh, in that recording that Jennifer made when she was little, uh, she said, a few of my little friends that are five and six, they came over and started laying on me and crying. And I told them to be brave because it's going to be all right. <laughs> she was nine. And these like, can you imagine being nine and like having to comfort these like five and six year old kids when you feel like you're going to die? Like, right. that's so scary. Um. They drove like that for almost 12 hours before the van. 12? Yes. 12 hours in those, like, makeshift jail cells in the back of those, like, dark vans in the California heat in July. Um, Finally, the vans slow and pull off the road, and the kids are, like, bumping around in the back because they're driving over this rough terrain. And then suddenly, the doors on the van open the kidnappers take out ed and then close the door behind him and one by one like this they remove all of the children from the vans isn't that so creepy like can you imagine being in the van and just seeing like one by one yeah, some, like people one get pulled by out, one and you have no idea what's happening like once they get pulled out because like they see them get pulled out the doors close and then when they open again they're they're not there just the kidnappers Right, nobody's coming back. Like, you probably think they're all, like, taking you to be slaughtered. Yeah, um, so they asked all of the, so one by one they pulled them out. They asked the kids their name and their age. Then they bring them to a wooden ladder, which descends into a hole in the ground and force them to climb down. So Ed and the children found themselves in an old truck trailer that the kidnappers had buried previously. So it's like, uh, like think of like a trailer on the back of like a semi, uh, but I'm like sorry. smaller so there's than like that. like a buried semi trailer. Oh, well, smaller than that, but like in the like, ground. Like, like you know those like little like half semis like that, buried in the ground. This is getting wilder by the moment. And so like that's what like the hole was in the top of that, and then like. Or the hole was, like, in the ground, and then they climbed on this ladder into this, like, trailer that had been buried. Okay. Um, there was a table at the back with jugs of water and shelf-stable food, like cereal and peanut butter and stuff. And they could hear fans whirring, so they knew there was, like, some sort of ventilation system. Because uh, they're, like, fully underground. Michael Marshall, who was 14 at the time, was in the van with Jennifer's brother and a lot of the younger children. And he describes in his 48 hours interview that as the children were removed one by one, uh, it ended up that only he and five-year-old Monica Artery were left inside. And she was like clinging on to him, terrified. And he said that... Uh, okay, I'm not going to cry yet. He said that since he didn't know what was happening to the kids once they were taken from the van, he couldn't bear 
to hand her over to the kidnappers. So he like pried her off of him so that he could go before her. Uh, and he was fourteen. Like that's still a, oh like a God, kid. Uh, I know. Um. So he goes down to the hole, and to his relief, Monica follows him soon after, and now everyone is back together again in the hole. Ed and all the children and the siblings, like, were reunited, and briefly, everyone was really excited, like, to see each other alive. Uh, But then the kidnappers pull up the ladder, throw down a roll of toilet paper, and say that they'll be back for them. Then they cover the opening of the hole with a manhole cover. And Ed and the children are plunged into darkness again. And then they hear the sounds of dirt being flung over the top of the truck trailer. They're being buried alive. Buried alive 12 feet beneath the surface. Literally, what the fuck? Like, (laughs) because obviously this is like premeditated right like you don't just bury yeah. a half semi in the ground with <laughs> and then like water. remember like oh i have that out there yeah we're like oh i was just using that for my emergency bunker and maybe it was but like i maybe it's what it started out as but like come on this this is this is crazy keep going keep going okay so michael said uh he, he's the 14 year old and he said Quote, it would be silent, and then somebody would bust out crying, and the hole would just erupt. Everybody's crying. The thing that made me cry, oh no, I'm going to cry, was not being able to say goodbye to my mom, and remembering the last time I saw her, and wishing I could have told her goodbye. He's 14. Uh, okay. sad. I know. I, I don't know why I did working. a kid's story, because kids get to me so bad. Um... I know. What were you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. After nearly 12 hours in the hole, the fans stop working, so there's no longer ventilation. Oh, my God. And uh, at that point, there's 26 kids and Larry, so they'd eaten all the food because, remember, they were. it was like 12. It's been a full day now. They were transported for, like, around 12 hours. Then they're trapped underground for 12 hours, so they're starving. Um, And there wasn't, like, that much food. So the food's gone. There's no ventilation. Larry Park, he was the six-year-old that I mentioned earlier, said that uh, there was one boy who, like, I'm assuming this was out of frustration, kept, like, kicking the blocks out out from beneath the four-by-four pillars that were, like, supporting the roof of the trailer against the weight of the dirt on top of it because, like, it needed more support than just the trailer because that was 12 feet of dirt on it. Um, And he said, like, the ceiling started to cave in. Oh, God. Yeah. So, I, 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 well, maybe there wasn't 12 feet of dirt. Maybe, like, all together. But there's a shit ton of dirt on top of it, okay? And they're 12 feet underground at the bottom of the trailer. Um, and this kid is kicking the blocks out because he's, I get, I'm assuming he was, like, pissed off. And then, yeah. So yeah, the ceiling, or bored. Like, right. Been there yeah, for a while. The ceiling starts to cave in. And then Larry, who was six, says that at that point he just knew he was going to die. okay so and then jennifer mentioned like the older kids and ed kind of came to this understanding that like well if we're gonna die we're gonna die trying to get out best plan honestly i know 
at that point, like, what you genuinely have nothing left to lose. So, Ed, the bus driver, and Michael, who's the 14 year old, they um, stack a bunch of mattresses on top of each other because they were like a bunch of mattresses in this in this truck trailer. Uh, like they had like planned for a bunch of people to be sleeping there. So they stack the mattresses one on top of the other beneath the manhole cover um, until they like get right up to it. So they like princess in the pea climb these all these mattresses and um and then they take turns pushing on the manhole cover trying to push against the the dirt that's on top of it okay and this is the part that made me lose it earlier uh but michael said that he was it was hit when it was his turn he was pushing as hard as he could and that beneath him all the kids were cheering him on saying come on mike you can do it oh don't cry Uh, okay um and then the manhole cover moved (gasps) you moved yeah through the power of children's friendship um and ed squeezed mike through the small opening but he finds himself inside a wooden box that the kidnappers have built around the manhole cover. Oh, come on, man. I figured they already had this pretty planned out. I guess they did it, like, the uh, one by one into the bunker so that, like, they wouldn't all run out, like, a good portion of them yeah. wouldn't run away. Yeah, that's what I would assume, just to keep them, like, controlled. And then, so they said that they asked their names and ages, so I'm assuming also this, so that they could be like, hey, this is the kid that we have, give us money. Like, like you can verify that these are the children that were on the bus, you know? So, like, uh, okay. I'm assuming as a way to, like, that's my guess. Um, so, so he's in, now he's, he's through the manhole cover, and he finds himself in this big, uh, wooden box and it's like just big enough for him to stand in and um so he says like he started pounding on the box and like then digging out the dirt that like flowed in as he's like pounding on it and larry described watching him and he said he dug until he was exhausted and then he kept digging there was no quit in him this like 14 year old boy is like saving everyone's life Michael said that he and all the kids were, and Ed, like, everyone was pretty scared because, so, while they, like, are trying to get out, they don't know if the kidnappers are right on the other side. Yeah. Waiting to, like, shoot them because they had guns. But they, like, knew they had to keep going or they were going to die in that box under the ground. So, Larry described that the moment that uh, Michael finally cleared the way out and he said... It's just beautiful, like, the way he describes it. He says, Then suddenly this ray of sunlight, this ray of sunlight came down into the opening, and it was catching the dust, and the dust particles looked like a bunch of shooting stars. I'm telling you, the kids must have just done, like, a poetry, like... (laughs) Well, I mean, like... Larry was six at the time, but he's, like, in his 40s in this interview. Oh, okay. Well, because I'm like, all these metaphors have just been so like literarily pretty <laughs> poetic um, is the word i was felt, looking for but <laughs> but the ki- the they ki- they felt the air coming in and they knew and they see the light and they know that they're free it was approximately 8 p.m on july 16th when ed ray and the children emerged from the hole they had been there for nearly 16 hours 
no. in that box of Nugrat. The kidnappers had buried them in a rock quarry in Livermore, California, which was 100 miles away from Chowchilla. Ed and the ch- all 26 kids uh, were like, so they have no idea where they are. So they're just like trying to find civilization. And so they hear the sounds of like machinery in the distance and they start walking towards it. And they like kind of know that it could be the kidnappers. Uh, but they they don't really have a choice. They they're gonna die in the wilderness. Like they've gotta go to civilization and they've gotta find help yeah. and hopefully it's not them. So um they come upon a construction site and then there's like all these guys in hard hats approach them and Ed says to them, We're from Chowchilla and we're lost. I'm so, uh, well <laughs> Okay, I see. It's like, I mean, you may want to just be as concise as you can, I guess. Or, like, you don't know if they were working with the people who Right, that's what I was just thinking. If they were, if they were, the fact that you're one man with 26 children would kind of give you away. Right, like, because I was just thinking, why wasn't he like, hey, we need help. Like, we were just taken. But I was like, oh, you don't know. Like, what if the people who took you have this whole, like, army of, you know, miscreants? I don't, I can't think of words today. Like, how do you... How do you even, after all of that, how do you even find the words? Like, I don't know. I guess that really is what it comes out as like, we're lost. We, we need to get home. Um, so the police arrive and they take photos of all the kids as evidence. And then they transport them to the uh, nearest place that has the capability of holding all of them, which is the Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center, a local jail. <laughs> Just where you'd want to be. Yeah, so they take these kids from being buried underground, take them to a jail. That won't traumatize them further at all. Yeah, for sure. So they put the kids in, like, a classroom and give them apples and soda. And because, like, at this point they're obviously filthy, they give them these, like, adult-sized coveralls to wear because that's all they had. Jennifer said they had to roll the pants about 10 feet. And so, like, and she said some of the kids were, like, flapping their sleeves, like, pretending they were wings and they could fly. Because, <laughs> like, what else are you going to do when you're kids? I know, exactly. You're kids and you're bored. It's like, mm. Yeah, kids do make <laughs> the best out of a situation to entertain themselves. Exactly. Um, all the kids were examined by doctors and questioned by the police, as was Ed, but no one could really give much uh, information about the kidnappers because they had their faces distorted by this pantyhose. So they, they couldn't really describe what they looked like, aside from like really basic features. So about 36 hours after the initial kidnapping, the children were finally put on a Greyhound bus back to Chowchilla, and after facing the media circus that awaited them, they were reunited with their parents. Uh, the media continued to, like, follow the kids and their families. I mean, it it was the biggest kidnapping for ransom in American history. Like, it was the 70s. Nothing like this had happened before. So, obviously, it's, like, a huge deal, and this, like, sleepy little town is just overrun with reporters now. And um, Jennifer had this exchange with one reporter. So he said, why do you suppose that they, referring to the kidnappers, would do something like that? And she said, I don't know. They didn't have enough love. Oh. I not know. A, not a kid's pure heart. I know. Uh, uh, unfortunately, also, why are you asking children... kids about it? Dude, leave them alone. 
They've been through enough. Leave them alone. That's like, I don't know. And one of those. Why do you think they did it? (laughs) I'd be like, I don't know. I think it was in in episode one that I talked about like a similar thing with the news, like going into like a plane crash victim. And they were trying to get like the story in her hospital room. And they were dressed up as like doctors. And they told her that her parents died on television. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, episode one. It's wild. Give it a listen. Wild. Um, so many of the kids were obviously traumatized, and a lot of them had nightmares, especially because at this point, the kidnappers had not been caught. Okay. So let's talk about the investigation. So okay. uh, investigators went out and searched the rock quarry where the underground truck trailer was buried um hoping to find clues and then they start looking into like okay who has access to this area like who would be familiar like this kind of a random place right who would be familiar with it and um their sites land on frederick newell woods who was 24 at the time and he was the son of the owner of the rock quarry uh Security guards at the quarry told investigators that they had seen three young men digging a large hole there a few months before the kidnapping. One of them, they said, was Frederick Woods. Mm. And uh, Woods also, two years earlier, had been charged with Grand Theft Auto. And uh, arrested alongside him were two of his friends, James Schoenfeld. Hello? James Schoenfeld, who was, um, like, Fred's partner in this, like, little used car business that he had. Uh, And I'm wondering if it was, like, a chop shop because he was arrested for stealing. But I don't know. That's just a theory. I'm just assuming that he got arrested for stealing cars and he has a car business. Like, something, something's going on. Yeah. I mean, Um, I wouldn't put it past. (laughs) I really wouldn't. Yeah. And so, so arrested with him for this car theft were uh, his partner James Schoenfeld and then James's younger brother Richard Schoenfeld, um, and all three of them were like super rich white boys from affluent families in San Francisco's nicest suburbs. So they got a fine and probation. Come on. Uh... Um. Prosecutor Jill Kling said of the suspects, quote, they're young, they're white, they're wealthy. I think it added a component of fascination to the story because it was so unlikely that three men such as these would commit such an atrocious crime. And I would like to say I disagree. <laughs> I don't I think that's true. I would also like to say I disagree. At all. <laughs> as someone who has known young, white, wealthy men, I'm not shocked in the slightest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes, those are uh, like the worst people. Yeah. Just like entitled little rich boy brats, basically, who I don't know. Uh, said so the police executed a warrant to search Frederick Wood's father's house. Um, and there they find a fuck ton of evidence, including one of the guns that was used in the kidnapping. Again, why are these people so bad at crime? Hmm? Like, it's like, you don't, you put all this effort into, like, plant, like built, burying this trailer, planning it, and then you're like, mm, I'm just going to leave the gun laying around in case anyone wants to find it. Um, right. They like, also. Get it together. But also, like, don't get it together, but, like, get it together. This is crazy. Listen, 
They also find a document labeled plan. Now, plan. Couldn't think of anything else. It's, it says plan. It's just like written up, up on top of it is plan. And it lays out how these kidnappers had carefully constructed intricate details of their crime over a year and a half long period. And they also found a draft Whoa. for a ransom note. I know. I just love that they like, again, like intricately play all those details and then just like leave a piece of paper with plan written on it in bold letters next to the fucking gun that they use in the crime. <laughs> They're like, this should be fine. Right. Come on. Like quite and literally it, almost it, like smoking gun. Dude, it gets stupider. Okay, listen. So the, the draft of the ransom note says that they were going to ask for $2.5 million, but they had later decided they were going to ask for $5 million from the state of California for the return of the children. Okay. However. Okay. They had, when they had tried to call the Chowchilla Police Department to, like, ask for their ransom money, there were tons of calls coming in from around the world and the little police department was completely like overwhelmed so they literally like couldn't get through so then they decide to take a nap uh and try again later but when they wake up they turn on the news and see that the kids have been found Like, oh, this is not, gosh. like, like it would be, like, fucking hello. If this was a movie, like a Coen Brothers film, it would be so goddamn funny. <laughs> it's just so, like, stupid. Like, Yeah. So stupid. Okay. So, obviously, they're never I'm just shaking to my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, Frederick Woods, James Schoenfeld, and Richard Schoenfeld are all arrested. They are put in a lineup and asked to repeat phrases that the kidnappers used so that the kids could identify them by their voices. There was, like, obviously super overwhelming evidence against them. Um, So they all pleaded guilty to 27 counts of kidnapping for ransom and robbery, uh, 26 for the children and one for Ed, and then they refused to plead guilty to the eight counts of bodily harm with which they were charged. Um, and so those charges could have sent them to prison for life uh, without the possibility of parole. So, because they refused to plead for those 16 months after their abduction, Jennifer, Michael, and some of the other kids had to face the kidnappers in court. They testified oh, that, no. like, in addition... I know. So they said, like, in addition to essentially, like, the PTSD that they experienced from the ordeal, uh, they had suffered physical wounds, like cuts, bruises, and burns, which, like, to me, tracks. Like, they were bumping around the back of this van with, like, wooden boards in the dark, and then they had to climb this ladder, this, like, makeshift ladder into this deep, dark hole where they were held for 16 hours, and, like, they're I'm sure they're bumping into each other, they're bumping into the furniture, they're, like... I'm sure the kidnappers were not gentle in handling them. Like, do me that, Jax. Um, Jennifer was one of the children. Too. Yeah. So Jennifer is one of the kids who testified. She said that uh, while she testified, the kidnappers were giving her this look that made her feel scared. Which, like, oh, I think so brave of you, you fucking 20-something-year-old men, like, intimidating a nine-year-old girl, you pieces of trash. Why? She's literally nine. Ugh. 
Um, but she says that she gave her testimony and left with her head held high because there was no way she was going to let them see her cry. <sighs> what a very like wise nine-year-old like no. not wise but like what a very brave nine-year-old oh yeah for sure all of these kids that testified that's so scary um okay so they're convicted on all counts and sentenced to life without parole bye bitch However, <laughs> four years after the conviction the convictions of bodily harm were thrown out after appeals made by the kidnappers' lawyers. And the three men were resentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Ugh. So, of course. So, I know. So, this forced the children and Ed to have to relive their trauma repeatedly as over the years there were about 60 parole hearings between the three offenders. And so, like, um, in, in case, like, you're unfamiliar, when there's a parole hearing, if you were the victim, you have the right to come and, like, give a statement about why you feel that this person, like, should not be released um, or should be, if that's the case. So to help keep like in hopes of keeping these people in jail ed and a bunch of these kids had to like repeatedly go testify about what happened to them over the years richard schoenfeld was the first to be granted parole he was paroled in june of 2012 um three years later his brother james was also paroled now fred woods remained in prison due to bad behavior and refusal to follow prison rules they said like he had like pornography and a cell phone and like basically just like couldn't keep it together so larry park who was six we talked about him uh at the time he said that by age 10 he'd become an angry child and at 15 his parents placed him in a facility for youth offenders because they were afraid that he would be violent by 21 he was using meth crack and acid he said he was just angry uh, which like which like how like how do you reconcile like you were six like having to face mortality and like come to terms with the fact that you and like that you could die at age six like how are you supposed to just recover from that and move on especially when like these people could get out of jail at any moment. Right. Like, and it, like, of course, people are going to be like, well, it was his choice. Like, okay, yeah, we all have choices. But, like, honestly, you were six and you were kidnapped and thrown into, like, a bunker. Like, how, you, yeah. you, you're not going to cope well always. You're not always going to be, like, no, it, the nine-year-old girl. And in the 70s, and she was like, nine. resources... <laughs> Yeah, and in the 70s, like, resources for, like, mental health, like, I'm sure, and especially for boys, I'm sure that he, he exactly did not helpful. receive. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Michael Marshall, the hero, um, the 14-year-old who, like, dug their way out, basically, unfortunately, he went down a similar path. He said in his 48 Hours interview that, quote, I could, I could see years ahead of me. And then after the kidnapping, I could not see tomorrow. I went to bed drunk at 18. Uh, uh, I went to bed at 18 drunk and hungover and blacked out and woke up about 48, you know, with a hangover blurry. That's sad. 
However, as Larry says, healing continues if you allow it. So Larry went on to own a handyman business and volunteer as a pastor at a local church. At the time of his 48 hours interview, he was nine years sober. Oh, wow. Good for him. And he said that his nightmares had finally stopped. Don't cry, Bailey. You cry enough. Uh, Okay, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm going to try to get through this, but I'm probably not going to. Okay, Uh, so Jennifer, our nine-year-old little brave girl, um, she said... In her 48 hours interview, quote, I've had family and church family and co-workers that have piece by piece helped put me back together. Nope, I'm gonna lose it. Suck it up. <laughs> she said, I want, I'm trying. She said, I want people to know that the little girl that was kidnapped and buried alive has managed to live a wonderful life. Oh, come on now. I, That's... It's too much. Look, there really yeah. is, like, and we then, talk about the resilience factor. Like, some people just have it. Some people just don't. Like, some people are able just to keep pushing on and, like, better themselves. And some people don't. And, like, that's just life. <laughs> and some people, it just it just takes longer, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then at the time, okay, I'm gonna, I am going to lose it. But this is like my last sentence, so I've done pretty good. You have. Um, At the time of his interview, so Michael Marshall had been sober for eight years. With the help of his family and his therapy dog, Blue, who he rescued when he was a pup of less than a year old. And now he says Blue rescues him every day. Aww. Um... And that is the story <laughs> of the Tachilla <laughs> bus kidnapping, the largest kidnapping for ransom in U.S. history, and some of the incredible people who survived it. Wow. And I only cried a bit. You did. And look, before anyone tries to come for me, okay, it's okay for Bailey to cry. <laughs> Just know that she cries literally every day over multiple things. Large and small. So sometimes you just gotta, in this friendship, say, suck it up and tell your story. <laughs> it's okay to cry. I know. I think I think I did pretty well. I think you I did. I just like these, like, it's just, you know, kids get, me, get to me. And then also, like, the idea that this, like, horrible thing that was oh and like the the kidnappers had said like their motivation was like oh we just needed money we were in debt and we took children because children are precious and we knew that the state would pay rob a fucking bank come on literally like these kids these kids and this poor bus driver they, they were just like so innocent and like no one deserves to be kidnapped obviously but like, but like extorting kids is like that, really low. And then to find out that like so many of them had like these struggles that took years. Like this one, these like this like one ordeal that lasted thirty six hours ended up costing some of these kids like years of their life, just like robbing them of that. 
Right. Because, like, it kind of doesn't feel like a big thing until you, like, have to remind yourself that, like, these were literal children. Like, this shaped their psyche. So, like, it... it's, like, I mean, you think about, like, the kids in your class, and it's, like, if, like, right, like someone they're like, taking them you know, away. Like, come on, rob gas stations around the city. Like, don't, if you're going to commit a crime, <laughs> don't, don't extort don't children. Like, they're just, uh, yeah. like, taking, like, overlording your power over s- something that has, like, hardly any power yeah, at all. Yeah, they also said, like, they knew... They said, like, they knew they wouldn't fight back, too. It's just, like, they're just, like, these men are such garbage. Right. Pickpocket ah. adults. Come on. Like, garbage. No, you don't deserve garbage. Ask garbage. Ask daddies for some money. <laughs> like. Work another job. Families. I know. There are so many things to do that don't involve traumatizing innocent little right. children. I don't know. Come up with a new product idea. Do something useful. Ugh. Just. Yeah. There are just so many. And like, and for what? They, did, they fight, didn't even try. Like, they didn't even get the money. They took a nap. Yeah, they didn't even get it. It's not it. like this would be any better if they had ransomed them. But it's like literally no goddamn reason. Look, we do not endorse crime on this podcast. But like, if you're going to commit a crime... <laughs> Like, I don't know. Make sure that you're, like, We reserve the not an right idiot. to make fun of you for being bad at it. Yeah. yeah, for being bad at what you're, like, set out to do. I don't know. But the thing is, is that even incredibly stupid people are capable of incredibly evil things. And that is what makes it a scary world out there. So hold on to the people you love. Bye. 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 <laughs>